Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ Lawrence, the journeyman entrepreneur, and your host for another fantastic episode. Today, we're going to talk about growth. Not just any type of growth, but the type of growth that gives you the independence you want. We're talking about owner independence. My guest today, well, I don't even know where to start. He's the CEO of one of the world's premier business coaching companies, Maui Masterminds. He helps business owners build their companies without losing their own lives. And he's an ex-Olympic level athlete and a Wall Street Journal and Business Week bestselling author of 12 business and financial books. Today, he returns to the show to share some great advice and help you grow your own businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome David Finkel. Hi, David. Glad to have you back on the show. Want to tell us a little bit about what's going on since you were last on the show? So. COVID's hit and it's a different world. And I'm going to talk just from the business context. So I have the inside view from watching and working with several hundred companies that we coach. And I'll tell you for a third of them, it's been an existential time, right? How do I make sure my company survives, especially for, you know, some of the the more retail establishments, the restaurant tours that we work with that might own several restaurants or other parts. For a third on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's actually been a big boon and no one would want this. However, it's made their companies much more profitable. That's created some dramatic growth and there were some real opportunities there. And then the, the middle third, it, it actually has been probably more of a non-issue from a business perspective. It's had some impacts in terms of how they schedule their office from people working remotely and they've had to make adjustments, but it really hasn't affected. And I think one thing I would put out there is for a lot of people, who are watching or listening to this particular show, I think we can have certain hysteria that goes on around that. And, and yes, social upheaval and lots of pain. I'm not, I'm not putting any of that down. I'm talking purely from the business perspective. I found for two thirds of our clients, it's been either a non-issue or a boon. And I, I think people forget that, that there's actually been some business blessings out of this. Not again, not that we would want this, but but that we use what the world gives us. That's what we do as entrepreneurs. We use what the world gives us and we adjust and we do it much more deftly than a lot of our competitive larger companies that we're competing against, Cam. I want to dig in on that comparison between larger companies and entrepreneurs because the way you phrased it uh, definitely seems like you've got some insight into when the business stops being the entrepreneur, when you scale beyond that point of agility that I don't think has come up on the show before. I mean, it's an interesting point you bring up. So for most people who are watching this, the likely choice is they're still the, the owner running the business. They might have a team of five, a team of 500, but they're probably somewhere in that scale. And what's interesting is at that level, Generally speaking, the culture of the business is still fairly nimble. In most cases, the the business is able to be shifted. And I'll give an example for this. So 
we've been doing this now long enough that we're now starting to get some of the kids, the adult children of our clients are coming into our world. So this really? is a guy who's in his, yeah, in his mid twenties, his name is Marcus. His dad is a, a doctor who is, who has a, a multi-clinic practice that we've been coaching for years. And his son, Marcus has had this online business. It was just basically selling off of Amazon. He started it with a friend and they were starting to sell these aerosols, the, the, these, uh, not a humidifier, but they would take and take water and make it into a vapor and put <laughs> scents and things in the air. And then all of a sudden, they, they picked up their first major product, which beyond that, which was a, an air filter, if you can imagine, an air purification filter. And here they are now, four and a half, five years into this process, and, and they're likely going to have a $10 million plus exit here coming up in the next several months. And in their world... Obviously, COVID is a trend that really gave them huge fuel to their fire. Well, they were thinking at first that they were more new agey, right? A beautiful scent that can be put throughout a room. And what they realized was, was that the real gains for them would, were to be selling air purification. And COVID just took what they did and you know tenfolded it. So that would be an example that most large companies would be too scared. If I had professional management in place, a CEO that I had hired, a leadership team that were all looking to a board for their, their compensation and for their continued employment, it would be a scary thing to say, we're, we're completely letting go of what we launched with and we're moving completely or most of our best talent into um, mm -hmm. air purification. It seems obvious in retrospect, but those types of big bets are what entrepreneurs can do intelligently. Not all at once. Often they'll place small bets and gather data, but they'll, they're willing to make that huge refocus. And, and I think that's a major advantage we have as small and mid-cap companies. One of the things I found very interesting going through the Maui, you know, your Maui mastermind and a lot of the structure, well, was the structure you describe for your, you know, people in the mastermind? Were there things, especially early in this age of COVID, I mean, how do we define this as a phrase? Do you think there was people were looking for framework of how to evaluate what to do. So AJ, think about this. How often in your business life have you had, in your life in general, but certainly in your business life, how often have you really had perfect information? I haven't. I, I can't even make a parenting decision for my three sons or decision in my relationship with my wife, Heather, with, with perfect information, let alone the business side. So I, I think what I've learned, and there's a wonderful, well, the book is, the title is wonderful. The book was good. I'm thinking in bets, Annie Dukes, but, but the idea for me, one of the shifts in the last probably three years, I realized that I don't make decisions anymore. The problem I used to have is I would make a decision. And to me, that was a, a point of you make it and then you never revisit it. Whereas now I'm really clear that when I think in bets, to me, that terminology helps me remember, I need to ask three more questions, right? How would it look if this decision was working out and how would it look if it wasn't working out? what would I need to track, measure, or pay attention to to see which of those ways it's going? And at what point would I shift either more into the decision or away from that decision? And I, I think a lot of my clients appreciated that. So when you get to a massive upheaval, COVID, what happens is you have a great deal of what we call FUD factor, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And when you have fear, uncertainty, and doubt, we go into much more of a limbic mode of survival. And when that happens, we become much more tunnel visioned. And the, the danger of that often is, is that the decisions that we made, we become fixated that we're going to be, that's the decision. 
and we don't look and get a broader perspective. So with our clients early on, one thing that we did was we had them step back and, 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 and look at the broader perspective. What might this mean for you? Number two, we had them do that from the frame of, look, we, we can't control the world, but we know that there will be opportunities within there. And if I have that trust and I pretend, even if I don't feel it, but if I pretend that that's true, what might it look like? And then the last thing we did is we helped our clients gather lots of references of other clients. We doubled down and sharing stories inside of our small yeah. community of, of entrepreneurs. And that was helpful because when I see that other entrepreneurs, when I see that you, AJ, have found a way to do your business from Spain and, and things are still working for you, or Michael, you're able to, to make this shift happen, it gives me a little more confidence, which lowers some of my anxiety to the point now that I haven't gone over the scale of that arousal curve. And now I can actually see the opportunities there. That's a big deal. Because if we're hijacked with FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, doubt, we're not going to see opportunities. We're just simply going to lock in. And a lot of what we'll lock into may not be in our business's best interest. I love that kind of figuring out if other people, because I saw that you're an athlete also. I ran track. Hurdles were my thing. I was all county, New York, you know, Long Island, New York in 400 IMs. And I went to university and they, they wanted me to become a decathlete. Yeah, you know, big guy, fast, endurance. That pole vaults. <laughs> I hated the pole vault. I hated the pole vault. But my coach used to, great coach, used to always look, other people have done it. Other people who are worse than you have done it. And I use that a lot. If I know people can do it, if other people can do it, I can do something. Yeah. So I love that you brought that into your, into your group and you made that into a real process. Sorry, I have my kids speaking of not lack of information. Uh, my kids running around outside. <laughs> that's wonderful. I, what, that's one of the good big blessings here that's happened here of all the people who've had to have more time with, with their families. I've had more dinners with my kids, not because I've always come home for dinner, but just my wife would schedule my kids four nights a week doing every activity. I'm like, well, I guess I'll sit here by myself. I'm glad I rushed home. <laughs> <laughs> I love the reduction of activities. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that to me is the best part of all this. It's like, no, this, this, and then Spain, it's a little bit, it's crazier because there's nothing that's school-based. It's all club-based. So, Yes. And, and staying in that for one quick second, as a leader of a company, whether I have you know one or two key leaders or I have a fully fleshed out leadership team, one of my core roles is to be the, I call it the, the voice of certainty in a sea of confusion. So what I have to do with my team, and, and we did this again and again, and we coached our clients to do the same thing. I had to have that conversation about, we're going to be okay. What does this mean to us? But most importantly, what does it mean to you? Because if, if we, the owner, are scared, our staff are more so. I mean, we tend to have a little bit more resources that mean we're going to have some buffering. Worse comes to worse with what goes on financially. So with our staff, we have to make sure that we, we bring it down to the micro level. Of what does this mean for you? When someone's in FUD factor, they're not thinking about the company primarily. And that's not a bad thing. That's a human thing. And so I have to bring it down to this is what it means for you. And it cannot be one and I'm done. This is, we call it drip, don't drown. I've got to keep coming back and coming back in small micro doses 
letting them know that it's okay. And they need to hear and they need to see directly and indirectly. You know, for us, mm-hmm. I coached a lot of clients about you know, how do you share with them that they're on strong financial footing and that, you know what, you're going to be okay. And, you know, for on our side, even we had some team members that for about a 60 day period, our sales pipeline froze for 60 days as people were scared. So I had to go in there and talk with, with our sales manager, our sales team, and just let them know, you know what, we're not making any rash decisions. It took us too many years to build this team. You guys are extraordinary. We have the pockets. We will ride through this part. And I think they, they not only appreciated that, but they need to hear that message more than once. And I think that even today, people think this stuff's going to end quickly. And obviously, it hasn't. And I think that's one thing I would encourage anyone who's listening to this. Take a look at your team. Is, is there a FUD factor? And if so, how can I bring it back to the micro level of reassuring individuals, especially my leaders, and then coaching them to um, bring it to the micro level with their individual staffs in their own respective departments or pillars of the company? So I want to circle around to a term that you used a bit earlier, the arousal curve, mm-hmm. because as a leader, I know that I do better and I learned about this last year. I do sure. better on the high on the right side, on the high end and the high arousal end of the curve. And I lose interest if I go down. But some of my best team members are people who work at the lower end of that curve and get everything done and maintain steadiness. So one, could you explain the arousal curve for our audience? Sure first off? I first came into hearing about this back when I was playing sports. So when I played on the U.S. national field hockey team, they used to bring in sports psychologists to where I lived at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And one day this guy talked about the arousal curve. And before a game's there, before a match, you start having all those physiological things that say, boy, get ready. And we can experience that as excitement, anticipation, or outright terror. And that curve (laughs) kind of comes up to a certain point of maximal usage where it becomes for us uh, as an individual, where it's just the, the optimal level of arousal that we have, our muscles are ready and all the rest of that. But if we go over that curve, what happens is we have a different physiological response. We eat up all the available sugar in our blood. We have a feeling of fatigue, a feeling of fear, and we start going tunnel vision. So the key is we want a certain amount of arousal, but not too much. Now in the entrepreneurial world, it's how do we deal with uncertainty and ambiguity? Most entrepreneurs by nature find ambiguity something that they're willing to tolerate or even crave. We don't want to do the same thing today that we did for the last 10 years. It's boring to us, generally. Now, I have clients that are opposite from that. These are the people who started as a craftsman in a world, and they just became the business owner by accident, or it just kind of kept going with them. They'll usually cap out at a certain point because they're uncomfortable unless they can find a way to get pushed beyond that place. But for most of us as entrepreneurs, we handle, tolerate, and even like a little bit of that uh, ambiguity or newness, that freshness. And for us, that might be things like a deadline or a new challenge that we haven't faced before. And when you think about your your players, Michael, I I use an analogy. We call them grow players versus role players. Grow players are people who want new situations. They want to challenge and test themselves. Uh, a grow player is someone who wants to have something that pushes them to grow beyond just the current function or role in a company. And then you have role players. Role players want to do well. The best of them want to do really well. And they want to grow in a specific functional responsibility. 
grow players are willing to tolerate failing because to them, the biggest failure is not growing for them. The sameness is deadening to them. A role player though, what they fear is they fear failure because they're going to be embarrassed or feel humiliated. That's really kind of the driving forces. And so just because they're a role player doesn't mean they're better or worse. You can have great role players. You can have a a COO in your company and he or she is phenomenal, but don't push them to be the CEO because they're not going to tolerate that. You can have horrible role players, in which case you probably shouldn't be with your company. And you can have great role uh, grow players and also grow players who aren't that great. So that distinction is helpful to see. If I have a role player, the biggest mistake I make with them is I try to impute my desire for them to grow. I mean, Sylvia's so good. She should just grow into this role. I see so much potential. And what happens is I make Sylvia uncomfortable long enough and she quits. And she says, I just don't like it here anymore. It doesn't, you, you're always pushing me to be doing something different because we, we, we think that other people should be like us and, and some will be, but most won't be. So going back to this for, for the, the conversation, the arousal curve for your players, how do you know if someone's a role player versus a grow player? Two things are the indicators. This is what we'll tell a client all the time. Number one, how do they relate to feedback or, or input? So grow players crave it, seek it out, use it quickly, and, and embrace it. They don't defend it. A role player avoids it, minimizes it, or even can defend against it, whether they, they sit there and smile, but they don't really use it because it's uncomfortable unless it's specifically feedback about their comfortable role that's more technical or professional in nature than anything that's a little bit beyond that for them to grow as a, as a manager, for them to grow as a, a business person beyond that function. Second way, do they seek out you know, new ambiguous things? Do they like to figure out new stuff? Grow players like to be put into situations to figure out a place we don't have a system. There is no, in, there is no controls about X or Y. No one knows it. It's an unknown equation and they have to figure it out. Role players hate that. They really do. Why? Because they're, again, they're afraid of failing and that failure to them has meant in their past embarrassment and they will avoid those parts. And no one is all one or all other. Generally, we have a mixture and, and they're domain dependent, but in the workplace, you can see that play out if you use that. It's a very useful distinction. Funny, I never put it in such a simple term, but my entire career is, as an entrepreneur has been that mix of trying to find growers because that's my mindset and then trying to build systems for role players but i find it is so much easier for me to work with it do you do you work with in your community do you work with people on how to set that balance and how to kind of you know grow great question the the biggest shift and i have people do a simple exercise they they think everyone they think they know all about their people and, and most business people are horrible leaders when they start because they've never had any formal training so i have them do an exercise a friend of mine who is my co-author of the book scale his name's jeff jeff hoffman he was the guy who helped you know scale priceline.com he was in there when they were zero in sales and then 4 years later they were a billion dollars in revenue and he was there for a number of years, but he shared an exercise he did with one of his executive teams one time. And I, I borrowed it now and I've used it for a decade plus. And he had them write down a sheet of paper with a vertical line down the middle. On the left-hand side, they wrote down the managers that they loved working with, the ones that made them excited to show up for work, the ones that they got the best performance. What did they do? How did they interact? How did they behave? They got the best from you that made you love being there. On the opposite side, what did they 
do the ones that were the horrible ones, the ones that you just dreaded going, that were deadening, that chased you away, that made you just want to find somewhere else to be? What did they do? And you put the list together. Now, most people think that, oh, there's things that are in common. That's true. But if you take it one step further, for example, most everyone's going to put on their, well, he or she respected me. That, that's a universal. People want respect. What I've learned is I take that exercise and then ask one more question. I say, well, Michael, to you, what does it look like when your manager respects you? AJ, what does it look like to you? And Michael will say, well, they gave me the trust to get things done. They didn't micromanage me. And AJ is going to say, well, they gave me the support. And when, and when they asked me to do something new, they were there by my side, not leaving me all by myself. Same value, respect, but two very different expressions for it. And when I do that with an entrepreneur, all of them in the room start off with very similar answers for both. And so they, they feel reinforced with that. And then I laugh and I bring a few of their <laughs> staff members up and I elicit, what does it look like? And they start hearing these different varieties about what does respect look like? What does trust look like? What does integrity look like? What does giving them space look like appropriately? You know, and when they see that, they're like, oh my gosh, half the people in the room, I would chase away. And these are their best employees by far. These are the role players that the entire organization is founded upon. These are the people who get the work done. And when they see that, they realize that if I can just make that shift to manage individuals, we say equal is not equitable as a leader. It's one of the guiding principles we use as a business leader. And I've got to manage individuals. We know this when we're in the world of parenting. You know, I've got one of my sons that needs much different touch. He needs to have a lot of a softer approach than a different one of my sons. Fair enough. I don't love them differently. I love them with all my heart. However, I parent them differently. Same thing with my staff. I have, to, I have to care for them and have principles that go across, but the application of those principles are going to be individualized. And is that more work? Yes. But when I do that, I retain my best people longer, which reduces work. Um, I get better performance from my best people. And it makes it easier for me to let go of things and know that the outcome is going to be what I want, which makes things easier. So I think on the, on the whole, the equation is greatly weighted in you and your company's favor when you do that. I like the framework because it does, I think, and then many other entrepreneurs and I think a lot of our audience, it does feel like we're skiing by the skin of our pants was what I was about to say, but that's not the metaphor. <laughs> Flying by the seat of our pants. Um, skiing's more fun though. Being in a position of this journeyman entrepreneur, you know, and having a few successes, but you know, what I call lowercase S's. I've seen a lot of coaching programs and I've seen, and I've listened to a lot and I've spent a lot of money on them. You're utilizing very straightforward language around a lot of common things we face as entrepreneurs. Sure. You're not doing the very typical thing of creating your own phrases. And it's like, if I have to see another XYZ TM is the way to do it, you're just talking about the issues we face. And then I've noticed there's been a few common tie points of just the things you've started saying, which I assume leads deeper into your framework. And I like that a lot because I can't keep all the different, like, oh, you mean this is what we call it? No, no, it's this process. It's becoming very frustrating. And I know that's a lot of entrepreneurs find it that way. There's always something new when we're dealing with the same things. 
in the process of scaling a company, I mean, let's put it to its baldest, most straightforward thing, right? Mm-hmm. Every quarter, I need to step out of my business and, and take stock. What's worked well? What did I learn and how specifically will I apply it? And then going forward for the next 90 days, what will I do? And, and when I look at the 90-day sprints, I think that's the best way of doing a company. A, a 90-day quarter is a great unit of time to connect these big picture goals with the level of actually doing, doing, doing. And so we're changing things and we have flexibility, but we have to balance flexibility with, I need a little bit of momentum and I can't have momentum. And my staff especially cannot handle me changing things every week or even every month. They can handle me making a strategic change once in a quarter, but they need some time to get some some stuff done. And so I know that I can only handle two or three top priorities in a quarter. If I have more than that, it's overwhelming. I have a client that I still tease about this. His name was Mark. Years ago, when I first started working with him, I laughed. He said, I have six priorities in my company. I said, well, just tell me, what, what are they? And he, he rattled off one, two, three, and then he gets to four and he's like, pauses for a moment. He gets it. He's like, well, five and six, I have it on a sheet of paper somewhere around here. And I'm laughing. I'm <laughs> saying, you are the CEO, right? This is a $55 million a year construction company. You're the, the CEO and you don't know what these priorities are. Do you, do you think your staff might be, feels a little bit that these priorities are, are make-believe Cinderella? And he laughed and got it. So one of your priorities every quarter should be, we call it your limiting factor, right? What's the one constraint more than anything else that currently holds back growth? And that's going to change over time. And if I can push back that number one constraint to growth, that clearly is an incredibly high leverage place in the company. Second thing that I'm going to look at every quarter is what's my biggest opportunity. Now, sometimes that is the same as my number one constraint, but often it's not. So that leaves me one more that I can adjust with. You know, maybe it's a key hire I have to make. Maybe it's a a threat that I have to mitigate. But when I do that, here's the cool part. Like, let's say my number one limiting factor, my biggest constraint to growth is I need, you know, I say it's sales. Okay, well, hang on. Is it sales based off of conversion? Is it sales based off of um, not having enough lead flow coming in? Is it lead flow is fine, but the conversion on that early part, I want to narrow that limiting factor to as tight as I can. And then here's a simple technique. We call it the sweet spot, right? I, I brainstorm all my ideas, a minimum of 10, 15 ideas to push back that number one constraint to growth. And I put it through two filters and they're so obvious, but people don't do it. And they don't do it the right way. I ask, is it a low hanging fruit? I go to each item on that list. Is it a low hanging fruit? Is it easy to do with a high likelihood of working, right? And then I ask, is it a home run? A home run means if it works, it's going to have a big impact. And those one, two, or three ideas that are both low-hanging fruit and home runs, that's my sweet spot. By definition, I've already chosen something that's going to impact my number one constraint to growth. And I found things that are easy to do with the high odds of working and will have a big impact. Whatever I do on those things are going to have a magnified impact on the company. And it's that kind of rigor of doing that quarter after quarter after quarter that makes a big difference for a company. And most business owners either get pulled away from that for a variety of reasons, or they don't hold to the center line of doing what matters most. They, they you know, I, I can always tell if a company is going to be successful. I ask the CEO, how much do you do in the company? Not how many hours, but, but how many different things? The most successful companies have reached a point where their CEO does two, three, four, five, six things for their company, and that's it. And their staff and their team members do the other pieces. 
the, the companies where the CEO is doing 26 different things, I, I can almost assure you that they're micromanaging, that they're wasting best resources, not just their own talent and attention, but other staff members' talent and attention on low-value junk. And that's a problem. Definitely. When you were talking about sort of consistently going back to the sweet spot plus high impact, you know, and measuring against that and going against. So I've always talked about growth, agile growth pieces where you're constantly looking at those similar pieces. But I, I'm one of those people who failed. I remember the company I last sold, we implemented a very tight structure. And as we started growing, it really fed into our growth. It was great. But then we had really super fun. And I just, I took everyone and threw them, you know, as I, you know, in hindsight call, I threw every process, everything, and just said, keep the water from me. Yeah. So like everyone working on our sales processes, we had built up a really great lead generation. I put into account management. I put my customer, you know, put everyone in. I blew it. And blew up my structure because we grew too fast. And then all of a sudden, when we got, when we lost a large client, I didn't have my structures in place. How do you help entrepreneurs keep that consistency? Because that I've seen again and again people, you know, even larger flare-outs in my little, you know, my realm, at, you know, 7 million, I've seen sure. larger companies. It's a hard thing to create that consistency. And I'll, and I'll do it through a quick story. So there's a client we coach that runs a financial services firm, a really successful multi, uh, multi-location. Uh, they're in several states, a high-end work wealth, wealth advisory company. And so I don't coach many clients directly anymore, but this is a guy who's been a client for a number of years. And so we're, we're doing at the beginning of the quarter, the end of the quarter, depending when you have a coaching session, I'll, I'll ask that, those same questions. What, what were your victories? What's the one or two most important insights and how specifically will you apply them? Otherwise, you get a cliche. You know, people matter. Well, how in the world do I apply people matter? I, I want to know the application. And then we start thinking about what are the focuses for the coming quarter? You know, limiting factor. We take a look at that again. We look at the biggest opportunity. So I jumped into this guy with uh, the focus areas. He says, well, wait a second. I came in prepared to share my victories. Anyway, he's sharing victories like in a year of, of coronavirus, they had had you know, 15% organic growth, which was a good year of growth for them. They had had this and this happen. And what it reminded me of was that the basics or the fundamentals matter. And generally speaking, if I can, the things that get me away from that is I, I get wrapped into the doing of the business or I get wrapped into the vanity of the success. Both things have happened to me before. The, the chaos of the doing I think things like, oh, I'm too busy to do that. I'll get to that later. Well, the reality is, same thing if I'm hiring a a new team member. Um, We're about to hire a new marketing person. We spent about two and a half hours, three hours, getting incredibly clear on exactly who we needed to hire to do what role, what performance looks like, if it works, how it's going to be measured. And we work with a recruiter and they're like, wow, you've done all this work. That's great. So three hours up front to find someone that's going to spend 10,000 or more hours working for my company is a great ROI. So for me to say I'm too busy to think where I should be putting my best time, talent, attention, money, resources, and staff talent, ridiculous. Vanity is another one. And and for me, where that kind of came into, when I was especially in my 30s, um, I'm 50 now. I, I think I'm past some of that where I would have some of these early successes. And what would happen is I thought, well, I can just wing it. 
you know, I'm so good. I can just wing it. And I've learned that I can't. And most people can't sustain by winging it. Um, that's the wrong formula from that part. So what keeps people doing it? There are two things. Number one, an outside set of eyes who they respect enough that they know is going to call them to account. Right? That's one. And number two, being around a group of other people where this is the norm. I can create that inside my company where my staff just expects it. And I can also create that with a community of entrepreneurs who are all following the same kind of strategic structure. Both those are going to help. But to be, beware of vanity, right? I want my values to lead my decisions, not my, not my ego, not my, not my vanity. And be care of saying I'm too busy because that's the kiss of death. I, I'm not too busy. Five hours of strategic time at the beginning or end of a quarter that then direct thousands of hours of staff time collectively is a great use of time. Matter of fact, it's the best use of time. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are hesitant to take that strategic time. Sure. And especially for those who might only have four or five team members with them, what advice would you give to take advantage of that strategy when you might not have the experienced team or executives to strategize yeah. with? So I think the word strategy and strategize has become this great big thing. It, it's not. We, we, we already strategize. You think today, what's the most important thing I need to get done today? That's, just, that's me taking a moment to step back for two minutes to think, where's my best time going to go? So what I would tell that entrepreneur with five employees or four employees, for you, you have a, the biggest limitation that you have is going to be the talent and attention of your best people by far. And it's probably going to be one or two of those four or five people and your time and talent. So I might only have five to 10 hours of discretionary time for each of these key people. Where they invest that five to 10 hours this week is extraordinarily important. And the process is easy when you see what it looks like. For example, if someone wants to see what our one-page action plan looks like, they can get to our website and actually download the uh, example tool, a PDF of that, mauimastermind.com. There's a, a business owner toolkit on there. It's free. And when you see it, all it says is, okay, I have a focus area one, two, and three. Each focus area has a criteria of success. What are the three or four things that would have to happen in this focus area this quarter for me to feel successful? And then it's got four, five, six action steps with milestones. When we complicate this and say, I need a a five-day um, off-site with my, with my five staff members. That's ridiculous. If I'm that small, I don't need to, have an, uh, to go off-site. I just need to close right. my door for 90 minutes to think through at the beginning of the quarter, what were my victories? What were the things? And by the way, the victories matter. Why? Because we as business owners, we're horrible at inspiring others because what happens is I see this pattern. Michael, it happens all the time. I become the parent that my staff can never please. Um, one of my team members a decade ago called me and said, David, you're like my dad. I can never, I can never do it good enough for you. And it hurt when I said that. I went away and I was like, wow. But when I looked at it, his name was Steven. He was right. Every time a staff member came to me with a victory, I'd say, that's great. But, or I'd say, that's great. And, and I would always have that extra. And it's like so unsatisfying. And where it comes from though, is if I can't give myself permission to enjoy the victories and the progress we're making, then I'm not going to give them permission and they will not be inspired. They're going to feel like they're always scrambling to do that never ending to do list. So pausing to see the progress made. And I'll tell you, I've enjoyed business more in the last 10 years since I started doing that. 
than I did in all the earlier time. Yeah. And it's not about that. I, I have businesses that are larger or smaller. It's not about that. It's just, it's more fulfilling when you recognize that even though there's more things to do, we have made some good stuff there and, and it's important. So victories, lessons with how you apply them, and then just stepping back. What are my focuses going to be for the coming quarter? What's the biggest constraint to growth? What's our biggest opportunity? And maybe I have room for one more. I mean, it, it really is that simple. I just need to do the simple again and again and again, quarter after quarter. And I noticed you've used the word focuses a lot because it seems like we've avoided a word that, frankly, I'm surprised hasn't come up yet. Goals. Yeah, I mean, most people think, I, I laugh. I have clients who come to us early on in this process and they'll show me their, their, their strategic plan. And all it is, it's a list of about 800 goals. It's targets. <laughs> I'm like, you even told me how you're going to do any of this. You just said, we're going to increase sales to $22 million and we're going to have this kind of market share. And, and I, I, I smile and I say, this is great. I'm, I'm thrilled you know where you want to end up with. Now, let's step back and say, how are you going to do this? Because there's a gap, right? Between where you are and where you want to go. And I love that you've, you've marked out what you want to do, but goals matter. Absolutely. But we do that once a year. At the beginning of the year, we're going to take stock of what is the business we're trying to build. And I, I tend to, with the businesses we work with, we'll, we'll frame that out over a three to five-year window in the future and then say, this year, what will we need to do? But I think the real rubber meets the road when we plan out the quarter by quarter. If I can't reduce that to one page, you know, I'm not going to look at it frequently enough. I know a lot of our clients early on will say, well, I have this other system I use. I, we put all of our stuff on, on a project management tool on Asana or on this place. I laugh. I said, well, print that up for me. And, you know, you'll see a 13 page, you know, Asana quarter. And I'm laughing. I'm like, how often do you look at this? Well, I'm on here regularly. I said, right. But how often do you look at the big picture of where you stand? And, and the answer is not until the next quarter. Right? I need one page that I can print up, put on my whiteboard with a little magnet, and, and I can look at it, not every day, but at least every other week. Are we still tracking for what we need to do? So I'm smiling. I believe goals matter, but I believe intelligent, focused behaviors matter a heck of a lot more. So you focused on the quarter, and the issue, at least, that I've run into at times, and I've seen many others run into, is... You get that quarter, you get the focuses set, and then three weeks in, you lose all that focusing and planning and sure. you're just in the mess of the month. So yeah. how, do you, how do you come back to that quarterly plan? Is it really just you stick it right where you're going to see it and you make sure you're going to see it every day? That's great. Four, four answers for it. I'll be pretty, pretty brief, but concrete. So one answer for it is you have to have some kind of process internally that every two weeks that you step back to, to formally just check in half an hour with yourself, or if you have a leadership team, whether that's three of you or seven of you, you know, you're going to just check in on that at least once every two weeks briefly. That that's really important for me in my company. I've learned, I don't do well focusing on the entire quarter. I do really well to create that focus but I turn it over to our CEO, Teresa. She owns the quarter. I work for her during the quarter. She, awesome. And, and, you know, she holds me to account with that part and other people in a, in a pro professional manner. And I found that that's easier. She's much more rigorous about those parts with it. And when I forget and drift, she's right there to remind not just me, but other people. Number two, 
I think it's important. I like having an outside set of eyes. I think that that, that that's one thing, whether it's a coach, a board, all those things that do that. So if I have a larger company, it's my board of directors. We're going to meet quarterly and they're going to check in and ask some hard questions about where do we stand tracking toward these bigger plans that we have. And as a CEO, I'm responsible to them for that. Most small companies, they don't have that. If I'm a you know, $7 million a year uh, business, I don't have a formal board. I might have a board of advisors. The challenge, which is at that level, the board doesn't get paid or doesn't get paid enough to get their best attention. And so I, I think a coach is a great way of getting that formal person that's going to check in with you about that. Third, and I think this is important, I need a culture that my team knows that we do this. So now as a leader, I'm really good about doing certain behaviors because I know that if I don't role model them, my staff won't do them. So you put me on display and I'm my best self. Sometimes when I'm left to my own, now all my bad vices and behaviors come out. But if I'm with other people, I behave really well. So how do I make it where I publicly inside my company have a culture that says, this is what we're going to do. And now I have to live up to that aspirational best me. And then the fourth one we do in, inside of the program is we get together with clients. We haven't this year. We've done it virtually, which is not quite the same, but we would get together with them once a quarter. And so you'd have a, a rocket on the first three, four weeks of the quarter, and then you'd start to kind of drift. And then you'd have the next quarter you'd meet again in person. So can I create a mastermind of other business people that I'm getting together with once a quarter that we look and hold each other accountable? That's another mechanism I need to have community. We, we think we're lone wolves as a, an entrepreneur, but we're social beings. We perform so much better when we want the respect and, and, and affirmation from a group of people who we admire, whether that be a group that I'm paying to be part of or a group that I've self-created does not matter. What matters is I have to have that. Um, and that's me at my best. That's really fantastic advice because especially for entrepreneurs now solopreneur has become a popular term once again it's even if you're alone in your business you can't be alone on the journey yeah you know and and for someone who's a solopreneur i i i know the appeal of that i'm beholden to no one you know no drama of staff and and these are all true things Uh, there are days in in the workplace that i think gosh i remember when it was just me the part I forget is how much of that pressure on my shoulder. So I, I'm going to share two things here. One is, you know, beyond eight figures is about how do I build that, that 10, 20, 50 plus million dollar company. And most of us think about it the wrong way. Most of us think the way I'm going to do that is by expanding sales and profitability. Oh, you know, I, I have to grow the, my, my sales, whether that be growth by acquisition or growth organically. The way that my clients have been able to break that eight-figure basis uh, barrier consistently is they do one more thing by increasing the maturity of the company, by making it have more strategic depth, where it's more than just the owner of the business who leads it. Who's, this is not an owner-reliant company. Um, I now have a business that's going to command a much higher multiple when I sell. And so think about it. I have a company that's making a million dollars a year, and in my industry, it's worth a 3x. If I can not just push the, the, the to $3 million a year in terms of profitability, whether it's EBITDA or operating profit or owner discretionary income, whatever measure I want to use for that in my industry. Sure. I haven't just threefold the company. To do that leap, I've got to build out the systems, the team, and the internal controls and a culture that makes that work to make it less reliant on me or any one key person. 
by doing that, I go from a 3X to a 6X. So my company that's not worth you know, 9 million, my company now is worth 18 million in some, some fashion with that. By maturing the company itself, I've watched our clients go from what would have been a 3X to a 20X sale in some cases on the best end with that part. Wow. And yes, they've had a multiple, they're selling off of a, you know, a larger EBITDA or selling off a larger operating profit number. But the biggest gains, how we really get beyond eight figures is I've got to push the multiple up. And I don't focus on the multiple. I focus on maturing the business. And, and I'll share with you something. You, you had asked me before we got on here, Michael, uh, in an email about what was a big decision that I made recently or an yeah. insight. So every year we do, we've been doing now for 18 years, we do our event out in Maui, this, this big mastermind group for our very highest end clients. And in preparation for this past year, there was an exercise that I created and I did it myself. It was about using your dream vacation to make your business more valuable. And I did this exercise and I started thinking, well, what would I do if I were going to take an extended vacation? You know, every year I take 10 weeks off anyways with family, but you know, I'll take it off one week here, three weeks there, two weeks here. And I do it around some of the business pieces. And I said, well, what if we were going to do that differently? Well, my kids are, you know, almost 12, 12. They're going to be 12 this month, two of them, they're twins. And my youngest is eight. What if I took the whole summer off, right? I'm going to go no work in June, July, August, into the first half of September. Hmm. And let's go further in this experiment. What if I had no contact with my company? And I started writing out, what were the things that scared me about that? You know, my staff would be upset with me or these clients would be upset with us or what if a person quit or uh, what happens if there was a, a, a large payment that need to be made that was above the spending limits that we currently have in place or different things. And then I went through and asked how many of these things were real or were they imaginary? Like my fear of my own staff being upset with me, that was imaginary. That wasn't real. The concern over a team member quitting or a large payment that needed to be made to a vendor that was over our internal controls that we have for spending limits, that was real. And so I started planning, what would I need to do? And so I, I picked a date in the, in, in the future. I picked, you know, summer of 2022. I picked that summer because I want to take our kids to um, Italy and to um, Ireland and to England. And we might very well hit a little bit in Austria. I'm not totally sure about that yet, but we, we have this trip planned out now. And so it becomes a line in the sand. Now I don't go to my team and say, Hey, I want to take my dream vacation. I go to my team and say, Hey, we're going to create an experiment. We know that we need strategic depth. I used to call it hit by a bus, but that's not particularly very flattering. I call it strategic depth. We need strategic to make depth. sure that for those of you not familiar with the term from geopolitics, that's what Russia's got. So strategic, mm -hmm. ah. that is the geopolitical term for- I never knew that. Yeah, and that's like the way you're using it now, no better description in business than this use. Um, yeah, right. it's why Napoleon and Hitler failed. There we go, there we go. That, I guess you mean that thousand mile border that just kind of absorbed them all. That, that, that's, that's, I never thought, I never put the two and two together. I love, I love history, but never yeah. put that together. Thank you for that, Michael. It's a good gift here for me. So I, I, I look at this and I explain to my team and, and we've been working for years about this idea we need strategic depth. Now, part of that is because I wanna create a, a company that has a certain durability, right? That's heaven forbid something happens to me. I still want the company to be there. I think we're doing good things in the world. I care about my team members and I care about my family. Those are all things that are important. But this vacation catalyst kind of really got me thinking about it. 
And I, I did this with clients there and they're like, yeah. And so the early take on it where people were like, well, me and my partner could stagger our vacations. I'm like, no, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a punk way out. You're going to leave at the same time. And other people would say, well, I'm going to choose to go right during our low time. And I said, no, 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 no. I want you to pick, make it more challenging yourself. Whether you do it or not, let's just do the thought exercise. And they started going through uh, about how to go about this. And now when I explain it to my team, the, the conversation that I have with them, look, we're going to create a stress test. When I'm around, I know I take up a lot of space. When I move away from the business for two weeks or for two months, this is when we really see how we're doing in terms of strategic depth. This is the ultimate um, rubber meets the road experiment and enrolling them on that. I've had clients do that for the summers, but it never occurred to me, even though I teach this stuff, that I could do that. And then I'm like, well, why am I waiting to 2022? So I'm like, well, okay. So 2021, I've made the the deal with my staff and myself. I'm going to work 15 days and take the rest of the three-month period off. and that will be our kind of our mini stress test before the major stress test. And I've talked with my family. If we enjoy it, I'll, I'll keep summers off in the future with that. Well, you could say that that's good for quality of life, and it is. But more than that, it's actually really good for the business. Strategic depth is not just defense. It's, a, it's the way that I guarantee that I actually have a scalable platform. If I have good strategic depth, I can handle fast growth. If I don't have strategic depth, then once I max my people out, I'm done. But with good strategic depth, that means I've got multiple people who can do functions. I've got really good systems in place that have some durability. And I'm going to have to have a culture that says this is what and how we do it in our company. So now what we do every quarter is we, as an executive team, as a leadership team, we say, okay, we just did this, by the way, last Friday. Um, I, I asked everyone, I said, what rate your, your area of the company? We call them pillars, sales, marketing, operations, coaching, technology, um, accounting or finance, and then the executive leadership function. Um, when I said, grade yourself one to 10 in, in terms of where you think you currently are strategic depth in your area of the company. Some people said four, some people said seven. Great. It's a subjective thing, but it gives a little rigor. What's your goal? What's your target by the end of the year? Oh, I want to go from a six to a, an eight plus. Wonderful. And so now the next exercise for them to create, what's the written criteria of success? What would we have to do in your area of the company for us to go from a six to an eight? Oh, I'd have to have this function backed up. I would need to have one extra person that could be kind of a floater for this. I would need this process documented. I would need to have this historic relationship where there's a second touch point for that. Great. I don't do that all at once. I don't step away from the company, build strategic depth, and then put it back in. I can't do that. How do we grow a skeletal system? We don't like shove bones into a fully formed human being. We grow bones over time. So I say this quarter, what's the one, two, or three things I'm going to do to increase strategic depth in my area this quarter? Shouldn't take me more than three hours, five hours in the entire quarter. But if I do that every quarter in each of these key pillars, little bit at a time. You better believe it. Uh, AJ, when I'm over there, you'll join me in, in Italy and we'll, we'll have, you know, have a glass of wine and get a chance to say hello, right? Because little incremental bits with that will start to compound. The real impact, it doesn't happen in the first 12 months. But somewhere in about year two, three, or four, you realize I have all this free time for me that I can now focus on the highest value parts of the business. And this is where I can start scaling much faster. You use a lot of phrases that are very close to the concept of um, like finding mastery. 
where it's not the destination, even though you, you know, you talk about gold, but it's, sure. it's the clean, yeah, the daily cleaning, the daily work, the daily commitment, the ongoing commitment to doing things, not just improving yourself, but just doing the work in and again and again and again. That is, I think, a very resonating piece because I think there's a gazillion people who tell us we, they have the solution. Most entrepreneurs who kind of reach any success start saying, ah, okay, there is no single answer. You know, there are no cheat codes. But you bring this very, just do the work and bring it through. And that's a very powerful message. And I think, you know, would resonate with a lot of the audience. I know it resonates with me because that is, that's the hardest thing when things are so difficult, when things, you know, constantly keeping us just do it and then plan out here, go a little bit bigger, a little bit more. I appreciate that. And, and, and this idea of just do the work, like, you know, call it a practice or what you want. Yes, the key with this rhythm of the quarter, what it does is it, it becomes a little bit easier every quarter. Um, the process is known. And in general, you start having more support structures. The strategic depth, it lets you handle and buffer from hard stuff. You know, you have uh, Jim, who was one of your best marketers, and he leaves because he gets his opportunity somewhere else. So in the past, you would have panicked, right? He's the one that knew all your strategic partners. He knew all your affiliates. He's the guy that did all this or that. If you have strategic depth, you make sure that you have more than just Jim in that world. And it's in Jim's best interest, by the way. You know, people think, well, what is my staff going to think if I start bringing up this concept of strategic depth? Well, they should be terrified if you don't bring up the concept of strategic depth because you're one accident or one person moving on somewhere else or one, one team member having to take care of a, an elderly relative over a three-month period where it causes chaos for everyone else. And I, I like to look at my team. Like, for example, I had a team member whose daughter had a medical emergency and you know, we're like, go deal with it. Of course, we've got your back. And that frame of we've got your back so we can handle when he's gone so that when he comes back, he comes back to things have been taken care of. He doesn't have to do four weeks worth of work in one week. He comes back and he can let that go. The saddest thing of all, I think, would be the fact that if I had to say to a team member, oh, yeah, I know that such and such has gone on with a family member, but you need to do your work around that while you're at the hospital. I mean, am I going to say that to a team member? That would be horrible, inhumane. I want my staff to know that we cover for each other. I want my staff to know that heaven forbid something happens to me, they've still got a way that they can create value in the world with the company and the world, the business goes on with that. We plan for that part. And I want them to be part of something that's growing. Whether it grows at double-digit rates, triple-digit rates, people want to be part of a winning team. And so when they see that strategic depth gives us that ability to, to, to buffer things that go on and to handle and absorb growth as it comes without turning their life upside down and requiring them to work nights and weekends and on, on their quote-unquote vacations, they really buy into this. They love it. Ideally, I start right at the point of hire and make that part of the cultural in, uh, indoctrination for a new team member. But even if I can, I have a, an adult conversation with staff one-to-one -one about why this matters for them, why this makes their life better, safer, more opportunity, ability to have a bigger impact. Um, I think it's really important to do that.
I feel like this very much ties into the concept of creating a legacy because I was reading on your site some of the ongoing discussions you have about deciding on selling or not selling yeah. you know, how you decide you, know, you have children, I have children. <laughs> and like this idea of why we're doing things and the importance of it and building the business versus working in the business you know, working the business can give us a good lifestyle, you know, without a doubt. But building the business gives us this opportunity to create a legacy. Is that a part of your role structure or is that just something that is happening because of this? Yeah, so it, it is. Um, of course, we focus more on the mechanics and the strategic structure of what we do. But, you know, I, I try to bring in lessons that I've learned the hard way. And so I, I sold a company when I was 35. It was my first big exit. Actually, I sold two companies. They were um, sister companies. I sold them at the same time and, yeah. you know, got the, the, the fun wire transfer. And all of a sudden, I thought I'm done. And a couple of weeks later, I'm, I'm, I'm going crazy. The biggest thing I missed was a place where I felt relevant. You know, I'm, I'm going to block parties in a nice neighborhood I lived in. And people say, well, what do you do? And I'm laughing. I, how do I answer that question? I'm retired. They look at me and I, at, at that time I had a baby face and they, they thought that was the strangest thing in the world. I realized for me, and I see it, a lot of, whether it be clients or even some of our coaching staff or people who've, who've exited from the companies and what they often will share with you is that it's fun for a period, but they lose the relevance of what they do each day. The world treats them differently. I don't know about either one of you, but AJ, maybe with your kids, you can relate to this. When I go into my office, right, which is three miles from my house and it's just me, I have a I have an assistant who comes in for some of the time, but mostly it's just me in that office. Everyone else works remote. Yeah. The world works in that world. When I go home, no one listens. Um, it's chaos. I wouldn't change the world of it, but you know, it's a different thing. I like having the place where I can go, where I can be someone of contributing value in a different way where the world kind of works the way that I want it to work. I miss that. Um, even when I take off for several weeks. So I've found for me, I don't know if I'm ever going to want to be different like that. So I'm 50. I can't imagine that certainly before I'm 60, mm-hmm. I've got other um, friends of mine who were in their seventies or even in their early eighties that have sold companies and somewhere around about 70, there was some shifts for them where they didn't quite want it the same way, but even still, I, I don't know. I, I think you have to find a way to stay vibrant and relevant. Now, that doesn't have to be business. You know, you've watched some brilliant people do it differently. You know, the Bill Gates would be a great example. He's done that through his full, uh, philanthropy. Wonderful. He's found a way to stay vibrant and growing and relevant in the world more than just managing his own money. And I think that that's really important. So for me, I love what I do. For me, synthesizing new ideas and coming up with, with better ways to, to simplify business tools. I love that part. I like working with entrepreneurs. I, I, I don't know if I would enjoy large companies or not. I've done it a little bit. For my last uh, book for the Freedom Formula, I was working with um, some people who led um, large you know, multi-billion dollar companies that were in the Fortune 500 just to see if I could learn enough to broaden what we do to apply. And I did, but it wasn't as fun. I mean, some of the things, these are some of the smartest people I've ever met, but they were locked into a structure that just would drive me crazy. You know, things that just didn't make any sense. So I think a business owner needs to ask if they're going to have that exit. Okay. I found for me that I would rather own my company and 
create a role for my company that I love inside the business. Because if I go to do something completely new, it's going to take me three to five years before I get good enough at it that I'm profitable enough to, to, to do that. So can I just do it in this current company? Um, that, that's been my strategy. I've got clients who do it differently that have sold and created you know, charities that they work with or travel has been the next piece. But even the ones that travel after a couple of years, it, it, they need to do something different. You know, my friend Stephanie was my co-author of Build a Business, Not a Job. She sold her company for roughly 100 million bucks. Phenomenal businesswoman, wise, wise woman. She traveled with her husband, Jack, for about a year. And then what'd she do? She started off on the board of another company that she was an investor in, a lead investor with. And before she knows it, she's now very active in that company for about five or six years in the world of cannabis, of all things, which I'm laughing because she's one of the most straight and narrow people you'll ever meet. <laughs> and, you know, they've built that company and that company will probably someday be a multi-billion dollar company as well. So thinking past it, I think is important. Um, and I like owning the business long-term. If I'm going to sell, what am I going to do? I don't know. <laughs> I come from a family of real estate investors mostly. Uh -huh. And there's a, there's a line that we don't retire. We just die. Uh, because <laughs> even, <That's crazy. laughs> even at 86, it. after three heart attacks, you still go into the office once a week to talk with your managers and then you get out. I love it. I love it. We don't retire. We just die. <laughs> That's inspiring. That's so inspiring. You put that right there in the doorway as everyone walks in. At our company, we don't retire. We just die. <laughs> and within my own companies, the, the value that I hold that goes along with that is we make our own holidays. But that that goes down a whole nother line of thinking. Sure. So I'm interested around this idea of continuing to work and finding other outlets. What do you do outside of the Maui mastermind? What yeah. have you got going on? So I still do some real estate investing. Um, I do that more because I'm good at it and it's good for a portion of net worth. I don't really love that anymore. That was my first coaching business was in the world of real estate. And I, I loved it for a period of years, but after a while it got a bit rote or mundane. For me right now, outside of the business family, my kids are still young enough and um, they love being around me generally, um, <laughs> which I'm going to take advantage of that. Now, my two older sons, like I said, are about to turn 12. One thing I, I did this by accident, I've got friends that are about 10 years older than me. And so I get a, a kind of a sneak peek about what their life is like seeing that in the future. And so I, I know that I'm coming up to a change for my older sons and, and with that part where friends become much more important. Um, I've delayed that a little bit with COVID, right? They talk to their friends, but they're not kind of going hanging out the same way. So for me, that's one piece. Um, Physically being active, I live in an area in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, so I love to hike, snowshoe, um, cross-country ski, I'm in, in, and those things bring me a great deal of pleasure. But those are the things that I tend to do. Family takes up the largest bulk by far outside the business side, and, and as it should for right now. And I think in 10 years, my wife and I talk about what, what would we want to do in terms of our adventures. She's a, a healer. She's a psychologist that I think she'll probably never retire from that. That's just kind of her, her heart calls for that. But uh, for me, outside of it, it's family is the biggest bulk and then physically being active. Not crazy stuff anymore. I'm, I'm done with that part. But I just love being in nature and being outside, even in the cold. 
you've talked about how you love you love working with entrepreneurs, you love you know this ability that it keeps you involved and ongoing. Just how do you define success? Do you define it off of the type of work you're doing or what is success to you? How are you defining So once upon a time, you would have said that, I would have said, I define success by what I do, right? I was an athlete training to play in the Olympics. I got injured before the Olympics, so I couldn't play. I'm a failure, right? Um, yeah. I start a company, the company succeeds. I'm a success. I sell the company. My next business struggles for three or four years before it takes off. I'm a failure again. What, what I've learned for me is, I am not what I do. So that's important for me to remember. I'm not what I do. I, I get satisfaction. I find there's a way of service with that. So for me, um, I'll define it by, you know, am I living my mission for me? I want to be a light in the world. I want to be someone that brings illumination, inspiration, healing, um, a guide, a, a knowledge with that part for that. So that's important for me. Mm -hmm. Am I savoring and enjoying my life? I, I, in my past, was the person who was very serious about things, very serious as the athlete, making sure I did my training sessions, I got my rest and my nutrition. And I did that as an early entrepreneur, and I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much. So I want to enjoy this part of it. And am I a good dad? And am I a good husband? Um, am I a good member of my community? Those are the things that matter more. So there's a wonderful book called Passages. It was an old book by a woman by the name of Gail Shee. It talks about what are the scorecards of your life? Um, I will no longer live by one metric, my, my business success or my financial success. I, I'm going to be a multidimensional person, which all of us are no matter what. Yeah. Now, it is a luxury when you have certain financial things taken care of that you can look beyond just that part. It's harder when you're scrambling for subsistence. I get that. Um, and yet I hope that no one lives by just one metric of success. I know you have a new book out and I think it would be, you know, I think our audience would really love to, uh, you know, check that book out. You were mentioned. Yeah. So the third edition came out of, of a, what was probably our, our classic book, which was called build a business, not a job. This idea of, of how do you structure and, and scale a company? I did it with Stephanie Harkness, the woman I mentioned before, and they can get that on any bookseller, Amazon, or if they want to, um, they can actually get it on our website. And I think over the next several months, it'll be on there for free at mastermind.com forward slash free book. So they can certainly get a hold of that uh, on, our, on our site as well. David, it's been great having you on today. And thank you again. You can find out everything you need about David at mastermind.com. And as mentioned, it's is it slash free book? Yes. Forward slash free book would be there. It'll be other off the homepage for the next several months anyways. But Michael, AJ, a blast. I, I love having these types of conversations. Um, AJ, it's inspiring to hear you doing it from Spain. Last, last summer before all this COVID stuff, we did a month trip to Spain. I walked ah. a piece of the, the Camino de Santiago while my family oh, yes. was hanging out by the beach. So I, I just think it's great. Um, and I love, Michael, how you move to a different city and have a bit of an adventure around these parts of it. So thank you for Thanks. letting me come into your world for, for the last hour or so. Wow. Did time just fly there? That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, David, so much for joining us today and sharing your experience with our listeners. I can't wait to have you back on the show. So listeners, if you want to connect with David, check out Maui Mastermind or read some amazing books. You can find the links to those and many of his other projects in the show notes below. And while you're waiting for the next episode, 
Follow Beyond 8 Figures on social media where we share regular updates, dig out actionable insights, and stay in touch with you, our listeners. So thank you very much, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Talk with you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond 8 Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.